0: looking at you, kid. I'm Charles Foster King! Hey, Stella! Suck on this.
1: What is going on everybody. This is Wrong Reel episode 487. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we've got a man who's not been on the podcast in at least a year, the great Paul Murphy. He's an editor, he's a filmmaker, he's a podcaster, he's a jack of all trades. He loves Marvel movies. <laughs> wink, wink, wink. And But today we're here to talk about the career of the great Danny Elfman. But Mr. Murphy, welcome back to Wrong Reel.
2: Oh, thank you. It's good to be. It's actually been like two years, I reckon.
1: Because you went off, you went went back home, you went down under to make a movie, which I had the privilege of seeing recently alongside Jeremy Workman and Kevin Maher. So give people the latest on what you've been up to in your filmmaking endeavors.
2: Yeah. So uh, I went back to Australia to edit a documentary about uh, the World Blind Wine Tasting Competition that's held in Burgundy every year and... It was the first year there was a team from Zimbabwe who have no history of wine tasting. Um, And they said, go back for six months, which I believed, which was ridiculous because I got stuck there for a year and a half. (laughs) (laughs) I moved my whole family there and uh, we were living in Airbnbs for a year and a half. My my wife, me, and a two-year-old, which, you know, was crazy. And it got to the point where I had to sort of say to the filmmakers, look, all my stuff is in storage in New York. My cat's in New York. I got to go back. So I ended up finishing right. the my film here. My son's never
1: going to get an American accent unless you let me go back.
2: Yeah, well, you know, he started saying banana now. Gotcha. And, and and it's so weird for my wife and I to say banana. So we just, now we say banana. So we're turning <laughs> American as well. But yeah, um, look, So you came to the test screening, which was great. We got such good feedback on that, like good feedback in in, we don't like this, we like this. Well, Jeremy
1: Workman was particularly good because he does what you guys do as well. And so you got to have the advice and insight from one of your peers who is an editor and a filmmaker. And so I was like, you know what? I'm just going to stop talking. I'm just going to lean back and listen to Jeremy because yeah. he's he's giving up some good shit here. Yeah, and he
2: was right about a lot of stuff too. But, you know, it's not just the feedback at the end. I mean, the feedback is insightful, but you just feel it in the room as well. Like, you know, you could feel that people were into four guys tasting a wine and trying to guess what it was. Like, we didn't even expect that people would be into that, you know, but you could feel it. You could feel people going...
1: Are they going to get it or not? You know. Yeah, that's that's the drama, that's the tension, and without tension and suspense, you don't really have a movie. Yeah. So.
2: Yeah. So the the update on that is that we locked last Tuesday, so wow. we locked the edits and. Okay.
1: I delivered it on Friday. How do you regain your objectivity after you've been looking at the same footage for a year and a half? Like, or do you have any tricks or to kind of like shake out the willies and look at it with a fresh pair of eyes? Or do you really just have to like step away for a few days and then come back to it? Man, that's what the test screening is because that's the biggest bit of
2: truth. When you're sitting in an audience
1: and you can feel them being bored you know, you sort of go, oh, shit, what are it's we doing? It's a gut doing? punch. Yeah. Now, like with uh, the animated film Cheating that I produced with Bill Plumpton, I would go to a certain festival screenings, and after you've seen a movie 10, 12, 15 times, you really start paying attention to the audience as opposed to the movie, and you're just like, "Oh, the movie's dying <laughs> right here. Ooh, the movie's dying here too, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's too late. It's, yeah, it's, it's in the theater at that
2: point. So we locked Tuesday night. I sat down Wednesday morning with my coffee and my music, and I was like, "This is this is the best part of the film because I just got to like organize everything, send it off. I'm done. Uh, and then like the second I was about to start doing that, I got a call from my son's daycare saying that he had a rash and he couldn't come in. So the next three days, which was the three days I had to deliver the film, I had to look after him all day. And then when my wife came home, I spent eight hours every night delivering the film.
1: How many sleep did you get in that seven? I got GI? no sleep. Sorry,
2: so I'm a shell of a
1: man right now. Gotcha. <laughs> well, we're going to be talking about some very peppy topics to, to keep you uh, energized. Now, before we get into Daddy Elfman, I have to just pick your brain a little bit because you have a um, somewhat notorious reputation for <laughs> disliking a lot of mainstream commercial cinema. With, obviously, with your podcast, Screen Psychics, you make predictions, uh-huh. you go see it, and then you sit down with somebody and you talk about the film after the fact. I want your hot takes on your maybe your two or three most hated films of 2019 obviously you've been editing a film so you've had yeah. less time to catch up with the movies but have you seen anything where you reached new heights of righteous indignation while being subjected to uh, <laughs> <the film?
2: laughs> well you know it's interesting as well when you're editing a film and you know i was editing this film for two years your uh like hypercritic is on so strong like movie watching becomes less enjoying I think because you're not just sitting there going am I immersed in this or not you're sort of going that shot's too long that scene's in the wrong place so you it's hard to turn that critic off but probably the one that, so you you honestly want me to talk about the thing that I just yeah, like yeah the, 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 <laughs>
1: like maybe like bile rise up <laughs> yeah, in your throat <laughs>
2: okay well you might get some angry emails but we'll see um pr- probably the thing that I was the most outraged about in the last six months I think was Book smart.
1: Oh, I haven't even seen it. So okay. lay it on me. So I, I, I have no dog in this. Yeah. Fight.
2: Yeah. I mean, it just, it, it it's, you know, I watched um, Olivia Wilde's interviews and I thought it's so good that she's directing this. I thought she was just an actress, but she's got these other skills. The trailers, the trailers didn't 100% sell me, but,
1: you know, obviously they were saying this is super bad, but it's women. So, well, the trailers didn't sell me at all because it looked like a comedy, but without any jokes. And I was like, ooh, it looks. Yeah. Like, you're going to smile and be charmed. Yeah. But I was like, but I need a comedy to actually have, like, like, actual yeah, yeah, joke yeah. jokes. Yeah,
2: and yeah. And um, I, I really wanted to see it at the cinema, and, and so did my wife, and we were always trying to plan it. It just didn't happen because it was out at the movies just as we got back to New York, so we're moving around the place. You're
1: too busy watching the live-action Aladdin remake. Exactly, right? Came out the same weekend.
2: Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but so we we finally got a night a saturday night where we you know got it on tv sat down made a night of it and about 10 minutes in i said to my wife you know this is just a really weird teen comedy because i feel like everybody is very comfortable with who they are there's no jokes um and (laughs) And it's it, you know, in the teen comedy genre, it's really about that vulnerability uh, that you feel as a teen, right? Yeah, I
1: mean, the the, the John Hughes era, of exactly, misfits who are being just constantly embarrassed and humiliated for one reason or yeah. another
2: i'm not saying that john hughes is the template i'm just saying that oh, R- american pie or yeah fast times at ridgemont high or any of these movies high school is not about being comfortable with who you are absolutely that's just not what high school is nobody goes teenage that. angst yeah and i felt as though that everybody in this film was just incredibly comfortable with who they are so it, it was a lot of sort of easy jokes that weren't really sort of pushing me in any way. And after about 15 minutes, I said,
1: turn it off. (laughs) Turn it off! (laughs) Well, you're confirming my worst suspicions. I know that some people are saying that it's destined to be a cult classic and it's one of their favorite films of the year, but I feel like it's one of those things where anytime filmmakers are too overtly applauding their own, I guess, lofty ideals and patting themselves on the back for their own personal politics, it's like, ooh, well... What are are we doing here? Are we here as like, is this like a pet rally for like particular causes? Or are you trying to entertain us? Like Amy Heckerling, when she made Fast Times at Ridgemont, was giving us drama and tension and comedy and sex and all these wonderful emotions. Like that's a, like for me, that's the true template of the great teen sex comedy.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I just felt as though this was, this was just coasting by on... Unusual people are very comfortable in their skin, and maybe that's a lovely message to put out there for teenagers. But it was not my experience of high school, and I don't think it was a lot of other people's. experience. I mean, my
1: high school experience was rural Virginia, all men. It was Lord <laughs> of the Flies. And yeah, you have, right. You've all guys in a rural, remote environment with no internet, no cell phones. Guess what? They feed on each other. Yes, they just, they eat each other alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's my high school experience. Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, I think we went to the same school then. <laughs> gotcha. Excellent.
1: <laughs> Well, let's switch gears then. Danny Elfman, I no one love his scores, but prior to preparing for this episode, I didn't quite realize his reach mm. and all the various credits out there that he had that he'd been associated with as a member of Oingo Boingo. Like I had no idea he was part of like The, the Simpsons and I was like, "Oh my god. Oh my god, like everyone thinks oh, Tim Burton and I think more often than not these days people think I'm getting a little tired of like the tubas and the honking and the, like, so on and so forth of like latter-day Tim Burton. Yes, well, we're just getting sick of latter-day Tim Burton. Yeah, right? <laughs> but today we're gonna be talking about like the really good stuff. So, lay it honest on us, people out there who might not necessarily know that his his overall breadth of his career. Yeah. What about Danny Elfman jumps out at you?
2: Well, uh, I probably, you know, I I sort of grew up listening to his scores, not knowing they were his scores, probably until I was about 18, 19. And I was like, why are all these things appealing to me? And then you sort of put the name to the sound and you go, oh, that's why this guy writes these amazing scores that are kind of gothic and chaotic and, you know, very sort of anti-John Williams. And I love John Williams. I think he's one of the best film composers there are. But Danny Elfman, at a time when the John Williams sound was becoming the only sound in cinema, was putting out these very weird, bizarre kind of scores that just sort of summed up a film so well, you know. Um, He... Started off in the band Oingo Boingo, which was kind of a new wave punk band from the eighties, which I'm also a huge fan of. I mean,
1: back to school and the singing like Dead Man's Party. I mean you're just like, whoa, like weird science. And I mean like I didn't realize just how many movies Oingo Boingo songs are in until I started preparing for this, but like, oh my god, like they're all over the eighties before Danny Elfman started doing film scores.
2: Yeah. And then uh in in the eighties, Tim Burton did Pee-Wee's Big Adventure. Uh, approached Danny Elfman to do the score. Danny Elfman said, no, I'm, I'm not a film composer. I, I, I'm in a rock band. Uh, but he couldn't help but hear a score to the film um, and went home, recorded it. They said they loved it. And so it became the thing. Um, it became the score, and it's a great score, Pee-Wee's Big Adventure, but it does not feature on my top five today. And it just sort of took off from there, and he sort of reinvented himself every five years. So he started out as the comedy guy because he did Pee-Wee's Big Adventure. But then by the 90s, he does Batman, he becomes the comic book guy. And he continues to sort of do different scores here and there. There are a lot of interesting ones you might not have heard, like A Simple Plan. Have you seen a Simple I have seen Plan? I've the seen theater when it came out. Sam Raimi, he does this weird score with like an out-of-tune banjo and out-of-tune piano very unlike his other stuff but still a great great score Um, and you know as an editor i'm always sort of working with temp scores so that's the score that we put in films when the composer hasn't come on yet and i honestly think i do that job just because i love taking scores that i love and, and playing around with them on the timeline and with footage And certainly Danny Elfman's stuff features in a lot of my temp scores.
1: Now, what do you know about his particular approach in terms of when he sees the rough cut versus when he starts putting together themes, et cetera?
2: Yeah, well, I I was amazed to hear because on the special DVD release of Planet of the Apes, which is by no means a good film, but it's a great score. uh, They actually gave Danny Elfman a commentary track back when we used to do commentary tracks. And one of the first things he says is he won't listen to the temp score. Which, Smart. Yeah, right. As You know, as an editor, I, I probably really make it difficult for composers because I'm really specific about the temp score and I, I actually cut it to the scene and everything and then the composer has the challenging job of trying to convince the director to go with something else. Completely understand Or that.
1: something that... Is totally different but it still kind of strikes the same tone and yeah. that's also a very d- difficult tightrope to walk
2: and i know that he won't listen to the temp score and he will also fight against the temp score quite quite uh intentionally that he will try and get the director to go with something else i know you like that the you know the big hit happens here i think the big hit should happen over here so he will actually try and run away from that as much
1: as possible something tells me that these days though like Tim Burton could just as easily just use Tim scores with other Danny Elfman scores. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> like, like I was kind of going now where I don't even see most of Tim Burton's movies. I've been burned too many times, and I still occasionally will find some of his movies to be kind of charming. But we were just talking about this on the um, Eastern European kind of folklore episode about how like Tim Burton's one of those directors where from like the mid '80s through the late '90s was one of the most distinctive auteur escapist kind of mainstream director There are very few mainstream directors that have like a very distinctive stamp and fingerprint but he obviously was one he could give you an auteur film that was also a giant blockbuster runaway success which is very rare these days oh yeah but then the 21st century just seems like diminishing returns copying himself running out of ideas and apparently uh, even with like his best movies like edward scissorhands he's not necessarily the world's most literate guy he's very visual he needs great screenwriters he needs great collaborators and I really think it's just um, an inability to find great collaborators who can put things down on the page that are really spark his imagination. Mm. Yeah, you know, I actually think
2: I, I think two things happened to Tim Burton's career. Number one was CGI is as soon as he started using CGI and things became easy for him, his films fell off a cliff. And I think, like, one of the first ones was Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which used a lot of CGI, and suddenly that magic of his films just went. Absolutely. Um, Because, you know, so much of his stuff was beautifully set designed. You know, Bo Welch and Anton First in Batman created these amazing set structures that just are are the tone of the film as much as Danny Elfman is. Um, And the other thing is, is that... There's an irony to his career. He made these amazing films about these loner outcasts who society wouldn't accept, when he himself was a loner outcast who became massively successful.
1: Yeah, it's like, and he's still trying to position himself as the loner outcast and dressing like the seventeen-year-old goth kid with no friends at school. But it's like but you have like $100 million in the bank. Yeah, and you, and you, you date fucks, models. And you, and you fuck supermodels. Yeah. Like, what are you talking about? Like, you have become that which you hated yeah. as a kid. So, you know, he,
2: he just seems to be in this cycle of what he went through in high school. But, you know, I think he needs
1: to sort of dig deeper for something else now. He should shave his head and put on a polo shirt play golf and like make just like the ultimate, like just mainstream trashy movie that he would have despised as a kid and just see if he discovers something, something new because I feel like at this point he hasn't tried to discover anything new in his DNA and quite some time. What
2: was the last film of his you liked?
1: I kind of sort of enjoyed the, I can't even, what the hell is it? The, the, movie version of the uh, old vampire show can't even remember the name of Dark it Dark Shadows yeah I saw Dark Shadows twice on a plane I was on a huh. long flight yeah. and I put that one in and I liked Ava Green in it and I liked that uh, who's that Australian actress who plays the love interest in it um, I'm blanking her name but she becomes a vampire by yes. the end she's Bella Heathcote or Heathcote yes. yeah, 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 she, yeah. I thought she was good in it and I actually kind of enjoyed Johnny Depp in it but man like I got. I saw Mrs. Peregrine and her, I mean I can't even remember the names of his Mrs. At this point. Peregrine's School of Basically Unusual. Professor Xavier in a school yeah. for gifted youngsters, right. but done with yeah. goth kids instead. So I saw that and it was it was pretty forgettable. But like Big Fish, I walked out of it. and, yeah. I, and I saw the. What was the first Mad Hatter one? Was it just Alice in Wonderland? Yeah, which yeah. which was a huge success, right? Monster runaway success. Yeah,
2: I, I don't understand that. And, and I feel like that, I think that was the other downfall of Tim Burton is it used to be, oh my God, he's going to do another film with Johnny Depp. That's amazing. He hasn't done one for 10 years. It used to be a special occasion and yeah. now every film. And Johnny Depp, I just feel like has become a joke of an actor as well. The roles he chooses... And he always has to have some little
1: story behind the the character that he's doing, you know. Yeah, he's, a, he's a washed up wealthy drunk. At pretty this much, point. Yeah. pretty much. And yeah. I, I read that Rolling Stone interview last year, and he just drinks wine all day every day. Like his face is all fat yeah. now, and he's just yeah, he's uninspired, he's uninvested. Whereas in the nineties, every role he took on, like ooh, he is. He's all up in there.
2: So it's kind of a shame in a way that um, Danny Elfman's career is is so intimately tethered
1: to Tim Burton's because I kind of feel like he needs to free himself of that because he's a still a great composer. Well, you think about a movie like Sam Raimi's Spider-Man and, and Spider-Man 2, that's one of the most iconic superhero themes ever composed by anybody. Like, yeah. Superheroes used to have these great signature themes. That would, like very hummable themes. Mm. You hear like only a few notes, like "Ooh, that's Batman." "Ooh, that's Spider-Man." And I think he gave he really did Sam Raimi a huge favor. You watch the beginning of Spider-Man 2, the opening credit sequence, when you've got all these great Alex Ross paintings during the opening credits, kind of rehashing the events of the first film. I remember watching in the theater, and as Elfman's familiar theme really soars, just getting goosebumps all over. It was really special stuff, but. Yeah, Danny Alfman, he should just go work for the MCU and bring a little personal flavor. Well he did he did actually do
2: uh, Justice League. Well, that's, that's, that's DC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I I understand <laughs> the distinction. You know, yeah. they're all crap films, but I understand <laughs> the distinction. I, well, did you see
1: Joker? I did actually. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Do you lump it in with the the rest of the herd
2: or? Uh, I was uh, I was getting over a stomach bug the night that I saw it, and I thought it was fine. I thought it was really lacking in plot. I was kind of like,
1: yeah, it's a character study. Yeah.
2: yeah, it's a character study, and that's fine. But I think even uh, King
1: of Comedy, which it clearly pays homage to,
2: had more of a through line than Joker Oh yeah, I mean
1: King of Comedy is one of those movies that I ignored completely when I was first getting into movies but over the last 20 years, every time I watch it I like it a little bit more, makes me laugh a little harder and I watched it again over the summer and I was Screaming like a crazy person.
2: Yeah, yeah. I actually introduced it to my wife over the winter in Australia, which would have been your summer, and she was like, "This is amazing." And I remember there was a time
1: when that was seen as like the forgotten film of Martin Scorsese. And yeah, nobody talked about it in the '90s when I first got into it. The gangster films were popular, and like After Hours and Color Money and things like that. But it was like, "Ooh, don't don't watch King of Comedy." It's like, why not? Is that, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's yeah. amazing. So yeah, it had the
2: reputation as being the Scorsese film where the camera didn't move. Yeah. So that was seen as a lesser
1: Scorsese. Film, but I think I think it's brilliant. Yeah, I I, I think it's. There, are, it's funny seeing how certain movies their reputation grows over time, and then the and since I started doing like film commentary and that sort of thing, even in the last five years, I've noticed that its reputation just continues to grow yeah, and grow. Yeah, and grow. but
2: in terms of Joker, you know, I commend it for having such vision. I feel as though it had a lot more vision
1: than so many other Marvel DC it's films. The most profitable comic book movie ever it's made. Crazy, yeah, That's I mean, just it's crazy. Like a 50, somewhere between like a fifty-five to seventy million dollar budget, depending on who you're talking to, and it will cross the billion dollar mark. But just as somebody who who thinks that comic movies, even though I love superheroes, I feel like they've gotten very stale and very yeah. risk averse. Yeah. To see an gotten. R-rated. Did movie, you say gotten? Uh, <laughs> have always been. <laughs> but for someone who thinks that they, who loves superheroes but thinks they have gotten become nauseatingly risk averse to see a movie that doesn't open in China with an R rating huh. that makes a billion dollars, I do think it'll shake things up a bit. Where because the conventional wisdom is you have to be PG-13 because mm-hmm. you have to be able to open in China, you can't take any risks because then China won't let you open there, etc. Fuck China. Like, yeah. like, clearly a movie can do just fine. And also accounting is so iffy and dodgy when it comes to releasing in China. You only get like 20% of your box office back anyway. So yeah, who cares? Like, yeah. Why I should mean, we let their values impose upon our films? It's probably one of the last things the marketing
2: department wants to hear, but you shouldn't make a film for all audiences. It, it should be a specific audience, right? Yeah. And that might terrify people who are putting billions of dollars into a film,
1: but that's just the way films work. If you look at Tim Burton's best stuff like take Batman which was a massive run of success it's still a film with a very distinctive original vision made with a Tim Burton sensibility for the Tim Burton fan fan base but it's inviting other people to join in on the conversation like I, I hate it when people think you have to declaw defang and shave off the rough edges of movie to make it accessible make something really distinctive and original and chances are a lot more people are going to want to jump on board alongside yeah. it because Batman you watch it now and it's got like people screwing left and right, spraying ass in each other's faces. It's a, like a rough, savage, fucked up movie in a lot of ways. And it's like, this is a movie you're selling toys with? Like, oh my God. <laughs> Cause that's selling what it is. happy meals. Yeah. Right, yeah. They're selling happy meals and toys. But when I, mean, I was revisiting a couple of days ago, I couldn't believe just how much dark, disturbing adult content there was at play in that yeah. flick.
2: Let's, let's stay with Batman actually because i got a top five here and Batman, I'm happy to do this out of order, Batman is my number two. Gotcha, all right. My number two Danny Elfman theme and I think a lot of people don't realise, you know, what this film did for comic book films, you know, and and to me it's, it, it might be one of the most perfect
1: comic, comic book films there are. It did are. more than Superman for The Quest for Peace. Well, there you go. Did there I? you go. <laughs> Which is where we were like a year or two prior. Yeah.
2: yeah. But, it, it, you know, it was also the first time that a comic book film or even like a, an adventure film like that uh, had this dark gothic sound to it, you know, which, which Danny Elfman brought. And, and apparently the producers were terrified of, as well as, as uh, John Peters. Who's
1: a classic nut.
2: <laughs> has a reputation as being a real idiot in the industry. Uh, listened to Danny Elfman's score and he was sort of like, this, this is a film about a hero. Why is this so dark?
1: Why is it like something like Dracula? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Well, exactly. Yeah. That's the beauty of it is it's it's more of a, a horror movie than it is uh, a comic book movie, I guess. And it became the template
1: for a long time as well. And you also have like hard-boiled film noir in there. You have all these gangsters wearing fedoras and trench coats. I like, guess a little kid when I saw it, I guess I was 13 when it came out in the yeah. theater. I'd never seen any hard-boiled detective movies, so that was kind of an introduction to the idea of kind of wise guys and gangsters talking in that kind of old-fashioned style, and so that that was brand new. But once again, you got all the gothic everything, and like yeah. you know, you got the, like, these incredible churches with like organ scores and things like that. But it's also this weird mainstream like pop movie with like print songs scattered yeah, throughout, yeah. and so on and so forth. It's like this incredible pastiche of so many different influences, and then Michael Keaton—he's not the square-jawed hero type at all. He's like a really unusual character yeah. who can't even remember if he's been in like in his own dining room or not. Like He's like, he's such a misfit, but I feel like Batman should be completely insane. Of course he's Unhinged. insane. Unhinged. Yeah.
2: You want to get nuts? Let's get nuts. Yeah, like yeah. Michael
1: Keaton in, a, in his own way is kind of the best Bruce Wayne because Bruce Wayne should not seem like Donald Trump Jr. Yes. He should seem like this total oddball eccentric. <laughs> oh,
2: that's a good comparison. Yeah, I, I, and I think that's part of the problem with comic book films for me today is I feel like we only really have one or two tones. And one of them is like, let's play it dark and serious or let's play it bright and fun. And I feel like I feel like Batman, the 1989 one, really sort of gave us a really mixed sort of bag of what they were trying to do with it. A lot more complex a picture than what I see in a lot of comic book films now.
1: Oh yeah, and it holds up damn well. Here we are 30 years later mm. and I've seen it I don't know how many... I, I literally wore out the VHS yeah. back in the uh, late 80s and early 90s just watching it over and over and yeah, over again yeah. and I would get chills every... It's almost like uh, like Beetlejuice talking about extras and it keeps getting funnier every <laughs> single time I see it. Like, I loved it a little bit more every time I saw it and here I'm 43. It still plays so well but that theme during the opening credits... Yes. It plays so well then, and then you have all like. It, but at the very end, as the camera's panning up, and you're seeing like the the city in all this glory, and Batman standing there, and you've got the uh, the, the bat signal in the sky. Still makes all the hairs. My hairs are standing up on yes. my arm just talking about it. I can it.
2: verify that. Yeah,
1: it's just wonderful, beautiful stuff. It's a perfect harmony of score and movie, and I also I like how. A lot of times, filmmakers will say you shouldn't let your scores dictate how the audience is supposed to feel at any given time. Batman and Beetlejuice take like the reverse approach. The score tells you precisely how you're supposed to feel every step of the way, and it's hard to find bits in the movies where there's not music yeah, dictating yeah. the emotion and tone yeah. of the scene. It, it,
2: it was a it was a big moment in his career too, because because prior to that he had been the comedy uh, composer. Batman was the one that was sort of like, oh, he can do this dark and brooding sort of sound. It was actually also one of the worst parts of his career because he did an interview in, I think it was Keyboard Magazine or something like that, uh, about how he's not a self—he's uh, a self-trained composer. He was never classically taught, um, and people uh, took that as him saying. I I don't know how to write music. I just give it to my orchestrator. I'll, I'll hum a tune to him and he will then turn that into the score. And that reputation sort of dogged him for a long, long time as well. This theory that Shirley Walker, who was the conductor... Steve Bartek, who was the orchestrator, were the ones who really wrote the score, and he just hummed into a microphone, and they took off and ran with it. But
1: a melody is an original creation, and the rest is craft. Yeah. And so without that spark, you just get a very well-produced but kind of innocuous, forgettable score. You yeah. do need them. The melody is more important than the actual execution. I'd rather listen to Paul Murphy hum a cool melody <laughs> than a great orchestra playing a forgettable melody really, really well. But I people always say, like, oh, well, it sounds like, like a Richard Wagner score. And he says like, he's not necessarily inspired by classical composers, but he is inspired by a hell of a lot of great movie composers. And he feels like through them, he's gotten his exposure to people like Wagner. But he talks about Bernard Herrmann, yeah. Dmitry Tiomkin, Max Steiner. I mean, these are some of the great composers of the golden age of Hollywood. And yeah, I mean, Bernard Herman, I guess it was uh, the day the earth stood still yeah, yeah, yeah. the first time Danny Elfman was like, whoa, that's something extra, that's something yeah, yeah. special. But yeah, I mean, I I love those old school Hollywood composers. And also, once again, they did dictate the emotions the audience was to feel every step of the way. And I guess, I don't know, I'm kind of divided because if you're spelling it out for the audience, then it lacks nuance, but mm. sometimes if you're just on a roller coaster, you just want to, <laughs> you just want, you want him to take you by the hand and kind of take you for a ride. I feel like Danny Elfman very clearly is ideally suited for that.
2: Well, I guess two of the perfect examples of what he does is Beetlejuice and To Die For, both films that were screened to an audience without a temp score. So before composer came in, they they had no temp score, played it to an audience, audience didn't get it, and
1: a what- oh, Beetlejuice would be. Almost impossible to watch um, without right. the score. Yeah.
2: and 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 they talk about the problem of Beetlejuice is the title character doesn't come in for forty minutes. He's only in twenty percent of the movie. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. you needed something upfront that said this is going to be fun. Yeah, it's going to be bunk dark. Bunk yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's that's what his score his score brings there. Same thing with To Die For. People watch that and they were like, "This is just dark and weird," you know. And the the score sort of said, "Yeah, but it's also funny and weird."
1: Yeah, it's you know, the first time I saw To Die For. I remember my friends and I. I think we were in our second year in college. High out of our minds and just screaming with laughter, just like just having the fucking time of our lives watching it. And it's sadly kind of strangely forgotten. Even yeah. I, think it, I still think it's Nicole Kidman's uh, best performance, but um, we'll, we'll we'll get to that in a bit. But anything else related to Batman? Because I can very easily fly off the rails and go into things that are not related mm. to the to the score. But there's another bit in the movie where I feel like the score really soars when. Vicky Vale and Batman yeah, have escaped yeah. and they're heading back to the Batcave. They're not talking and they're just in the Batmobile just hauling ass faster and faster and faster and the score just keeps building and you're like, she's really gonna go into the weirdest, strangest place <laughs> she's ever seen. Yeah, yeah. She's with this maniac and yeah. like, you know, she tries to look at him and he shines the light and so on but then finally they do go into the Batcave but once again, the score uh, almost I feel like it elevates the movie Above its genre topic totally, to that point yeah. To and something new
2: The track you're talking about is called Descent into Mystery gotcha. And that, that's, that's a big popular one Amongst Elfman fans And uh, so it's got a choir in it who are going sort of rot, rot. <laughs> <laughs> nice. and and I was just listening to that on the train here just to sort of bring myself up to speed and I cannot listen to that track without conducting it <laughs> <laughs> nice. so I'm I'm on the subway I'm just trying to sort of lightly sort of move my hands because it just sort of gets into you you can't let go of it that is a great great score that's as they're going into the bat Cave. um Probably the other bit of trivia about this is to sort of go back to the stupidity of John Peters. Um, Originally, they had the idea that Prince and Michael Jackson would would write all the score for the film or write songs for the film. Uh, Prince was going to do everything for the Joker. Michael Jackson was going to do all the themes for the romance. And Tim Burton, when he heard that, said, no, (laughs) we're not going to do it. And that's that's when Danny Elfman sort of came on solely. But Prince, who was very... um, Pushy about providing music to the film, still got
1: some some songs into the film. I mean, it's two major scenes where they play the songs in their entirety. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you got the museum scene, and then you got the parade scene. But it's like they just go and go and go, and it's like, all right, well, this you kind of forget that in the '80s, it was totally fine to like insert a music video right into the middle of your film. Yeah, yeah, and and of course the the big thing to come out of the Prince soundtrack
2: that he did, which features songs that have nothing to do with the film. Uh, yeah, like was Bat Dance and things Bat like that. Bat Dance, yeah, yeah. yeah. which. I went back to a few years ago. It's a seven minute dance song. It's actually pretty cool. And I just think like it's, it's again, testament to like the weirdness of Prince, I think. And I just enjoy it for that, but I don't think it's, it's, Got much to do with the film.
1: Where do you fall when it comes to if you've got a great legendary composer who's capable of writing a really iconic, distinctive score to give like the soul to your movie, but then you start pulling in pieces of well known pop tunes? Like, yeah. how, how do, as a, as just a, from your editorial stand, standpoint, How do you kind of reconcile those two different things? Because obviously these pop songs could very easily clash with what the composer's up to.
2: Well, that's why, you know, you have to choose something. I mean, the best... If you are going to put songs into a film that's also going to have score... You need to be choosing songs
1: that are right for the film. To Die For has got a bunch of like Season of the Witch and things like that that are shoved in there. And
2: and usually the best songs are songs that people don't know about that are awesome songs or are awesome songs that people have forgotten about. So, you know, a lot of of what Tarantino draws on is is like Little Green Bag was a good example of, of, you know, taking a song and putting it in a film. But... Yeah, it's, it's an odd mix in the Prince film, uh, in, in the Tim Burton film.
1: Tim Burton initially was kind of like, I don't know what I think about this massive hit that I've made. And over time, he's come to kind of love yeah. it. But he wasn't super psyched about the the insertion of the Prince tunes initially. Yeah, and it
2: kind of messes with the film noir. It makes it feel like the 80s, right? Like when we're trying to feel
1: like it's the 1930s, it, it sort of puts you in the 80s. Because also when he was preparing to do the movie... Tim Burton immersed himself in the comics from 1939, primarily yeah. like before there was Robin, before there was Joker, before there was anything. He just wanted to know what is kind of the, what is the essential DNA of this character back when Bill Finger and Bob Kane, all these guys were really just defining just the mythology. But with Danny Elfman, he read uh, Frank Miller's *Dark Knight Returns* yeah, yeah. instead. And it's interesting how you get a little bit of the old and a little bit of the new kind of stirred together, but those are some of the high watermarks of Batman as a character. So I feel like they, they had the, the precisely correct source material with which to become inspired.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I do feel as though it is hard to recall some of the best scenes in Batman without also recalling the score of that scene as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, when like Vicky Vale and Joker go into the church and he's like calling for like the, uh, like the pickup in like, like five minutes, oh, I better make it 10. And then you have like just this, this beautiful organ music kicking in and as they're heading up the, uh, the, the, the stage to like the big climactic battle. Yeah, without the score, Batman would be a much diminished product. Totally, totally. Now, would Tim Burton be a much diminished filmmaker if not for Danny Elfman kind of helping kind of piggyback his movies in those early days? Because without Danny Elfman, I feel like Pee Wee's Big Adventure, Edward Scissorhands, Batman, all these movies, it's hard to know whether or not they would even translate. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, it's it's a tough question. Uh and a lot what what a lot of
2: people who have worked with Tim Burton say is that, you know, he doesn't describe a lot of what he wants in the film. He's just he 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 likes to bring in collaborators that he trusts. And maybe that is That is his direction, you know, is that he saw something in Danny Elfman that he wanted in his film and was happy for him to just sort of run free with it.
1: You could say the same thing about Hitchcock and Herman. Like, would Hitchcock's best movies from the 50s and early 60s be as well known as they are if you remove those essential Bernard Herrmann scores, like yeah. North by Northwest, fucking Vertigo. I mean, Bernard Herman's all over his... Psycho. Movie. Yeah, his I mean, his anybody, anybody
2: handling the, the stabbing scene in Psycho, I just don't know if they could do that. Yeah, right?
1: so maybe, uh, as you mentioned before, how sometimes the editor gets uh, less recognition than they should. The composer probably is in that in that same conversation as yeah, well. Yeah,
2: well, this is where my head is at at the moment because I've just finished the cut on a film. I've passed it off to a composer. And when you're behind the scenes, you sort of like composers were so big to me growing up like I actually feel as though I got into film because I'm a frustrated film composer you know I can't write music to save myself so I edit instead but the the horrible reality is is that all of these amazing composers probably Bernard Herman included do you know how long
1: they have to work on these scores not that long. <laughs> they have like four to six weeks. Yeah. I mean, John Carpenter did like the Halloween theme in like two days. Right. So <laughs> so these like, things... Well, let me wear the keyboard. <laughs> what, I got 48 hours before I got to deliver this fucker. Like, all right, well, let's, yeah, let's this, do this. This works. Let's yeah.
2: just do it. I mean, to, on the one hand, composers... I feel as though um, you know, they're getting the film when the story's broken. So that's that I mean, that's the most stressful thing for an editor. But at the same time, to come up with something iconic that captures the tone of the film in four to six weeks, and that includes recording time and, you know, showing the director a hundred different versions of something before they go, yes, that's terrifying
1: to me. Well, a filmmaker's essentially trusting the soul of his movie with the composer, and Tarantino mentioned that he didn't use any composers until Hateful Eight because he was terrified that a composer wouldn't live up to What he basically was like pillaging from all these old movies that he loves because he at least knew that those songs would work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I know, I remember watching uh, the conversation between like Howard Shore and Peter Jackson on some of the Lord of the Rings films, and Peter Jackson was even joking like, there's nothing more dangerous than a little bit of knowledge because the director kind of knows what they want, they've got a little expertise but not really, but they have ultimate power and they're basically like force-feeding all these oftentimes conflicting signals to the composer and the composer has to decipher all this crap and come up with something that just is going to make everybody happy and it's, it's a, an, un, an unenviable task.
2: And I believe Danny Elfman, who had previously done The Frighteners, was originally going to be the composer for Lord of the Rings, gotcha. but couldn't work out because of timing or something, so it went to Howard Shore instead. Gotcha. I, I think I would have liked to have seen Lord of the Rings with Danny Elfman personally
0: bother you your own wife bringing off all them strange guys for money. I make her use mouthwash after.
2: Oh, you like that minty fresh taste, huh?
1: Sheriff's Department, you're
0: under arrest.
1: We're totally fucked. Just after you left, the pigs came and pinched Mom and Larry both. And my, my parole officer showed up like a motherfucking plague to take me off to foster care
2: again. Sucked like last time. So, uh,
0: what did I call you?
2: I'm sorry, my name is
0: Bob Wolfen. You're the guy that's been killing all them girls on the freeway, Bob. <laughs> Anything, I'm gonna shoot you so many times! You know, you should just let me out of the car when I asked you to, Bob! We are not here to talk about me, Vanessa! We are here to talk about you! <laughs> <laughs> get your goddamn hands off my anatomy! No! uh uh-uh. You get all that panties off before I get really pissed! Claustrophobic. Yeah, claustrophobic. Yo, well, I get claustrophobic, sucking strange dick. Get in there! Drug addicts. Fathers who fuck their daughters. Drug addicted motherfucking whores with their bastard fucking off. I ain't no
1: trick, baby!
0: Why are you doing this?
1: I'm pissed off. The whole world owes me. Is that you, Bob? I, I,
0: I can't
2: believe such a teeny wee little gun makes such a big mess out of someone.
1: All right, so what flick do you want to talk about next?
2: So we just did Batman, which I'm saying is number two. I want to do these out of order, so I'm going to go to number five, which I hope you've watched, which is Freeway from
1: 1996. It'd been on my to-do list for over twenty years. I finally saw it for the first time in preparation for this episode and I fucking loved it. <laughs> like <laughs> I really enjoyed it. Okay. It's like that's my kind of movie.
2: So I had the opposite reaction. I uh I saw it back in the nineties and thought, wow, this is fucking weird and cool. And this time I fucking hated it.
1: Interesting. All right, well, Lay late 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 on me. So but now what about your feelings of regarding the score? So
2: the score is is absolutely amazing, right? And that's why I have put it on my top five. is it, it is so
1: bizarre. It it's is like Little Red Riding Hood meets heavy metal. Well,
2: without you know, they, they the director said that this is a modern retelling of Little Red Riding Hood. I, I see very little of evidence of that in the film.
1: Teeny bit at the end, and a little bit in the first act.
2: Yeah, yeah. Why? Why you would? Bother even making that association i i just think is bizarre this film is bizarre
1: um and i feel like it's very 90s as well right but what i what i miss about the 90s are these independent films that were kind of rough and unsavory yes. this is a movie that had an nc-17 rating just for dialogue and they had to trim lines of dialogue yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like what the fuck did you have your characters say like I, I miss the days where filmmakers could get an nc-17 just for really rough unsavory language and reese Witherspoon. Just goes berserk in this movie. I know, thing. I know. <laughs> and, like, and uh, there's so many bad fake Southern accents. I'm sure, like when you hear like a bad Australian accent in a movie, you're like, "La!" <laughs> when I hear a bad Southern accent, it kills me. But she's from Baton Rouge, and she she knows exactly how to do a Southern accent, and she just goes. crazy crazy in this yes. and the best part is, is like foul-mouthed music to my ears every yeah, time she yeah. speaks
2: and it's probably where she got her sort of indie cred in the early days oh, this from election, doing a film yeah. like this a- and election which came afterwards as well so it's directed by matthew bright who i think is an old high school friend of danny elfman's and he was in the forbidden zone gotcha. which is a film danny elfman was in in the 70s that his brother directed yeah it's just It's just so fucking weird and makes no... Well, give
1: the premise because it's a pretty obscure movie now.
2: Give the premise. Fuck. Like, how would you give the premise? I'm not even sure how you would. Uh, You know, Reese Witherspoon, uh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) She gets picked up by Kiefer Sutherland because she's uh, escaping her probation officer or something like that or a foster care or something. Uh, And Kiefer Sutherland, who initially turns out to be someone who can help her with her life... Is really uh, a, 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 a serial killer. Yeah, and uh, he's a
1: social worker who's also a predator and a rapist. Yeah, yeah.
2: and and she kind of kills him,
1: but kind of doesn't. Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, and yeah, it's just batshit crazy all over the place. Very cheap film, um, and like lots of actors in it too. Like Brooke Shields is in it.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Um, but yeah, I I would say. To listeners, if they're at all interested, skip the film don't worry about watching the film. Just check out the, what I think was only 10 minutes of score that was recorded for As the film. As I was film. watching, I was thinking, I was like,
1: wow, this has very little score to speak of. I was yes. like a third of the way in. I was like, apart from the opening credits, there's been no music. So yeah. I, I was like, what is, What? Uh, I wonder what Paul Murphy kind of sees in this. But I was having so much fun with how brutal and gross and offensive the movie was in so many ways. So I was like, I don't care. Because <laughs> I'm fucking smiling ear to ear. It, it,
2: it basically is just two themes. It's the opening theme uh, which is put to images, like, drawn images of R- Little Red R- Riding Hood. Uh, and then it's the theme at the end where they have, like, a big showdown. And apparently Danny Elfman did the score for $1. Wow. Um, I suspect that he was recording the score to something else and said to everybody at the end of the session, hey, who wants to just record this score with me? Um, and it sounds like he just threw everything everything at the wall. And, and it's the sound of my nightmares, this score. Uh, you know, it is didgeridoo at the start. Um, it's slap bass and it's a choir sort of doing these weird sort of
1: turkey sounds or something like that. But it is just nightmarish. Yeah, it's like a cacophony, but it's a very nightmare, it's a nightmarish fairy tale type of movie. But Southerners are always very proud of their accents and there's like a musicality in terms of how they they lean into them and they embrace them. And they're always showing them off They're like, like Southerners are like total peacocks. And I, what I, that's what I love about Reese Witherspoon is that she leans into the musicality of being a complete total white trash redneck in this. And she's like, settle down, settle down. And like, or like there's some line where she's watching him on TV and she goes, my dick don't work, but at least I haven't lost my smile. Like, and I was just like, yes, thank you. Like it's just this is the trailer park on steroids, and that, that's why I was having so much goddamn fun. I, I,
2: I do have hopes that people who discovered Reese through Legally Blonde or Walk the Line, sort or of Sweet w- Home
1: Alabama, said, you know, let's
2: go back and watch another
1: Reese with a spoon film, and went, let's try these freeways. Well, thing. this is one of those movies now where if certain elements online were to see it, they'd be, like, oh, what? You can't say that, and they would get like so undone that this, you know. Reese Witherspoon is like, you know, like a feminist, he in a lot of, which like she's producing like the the morning show on like, for, like Apple TV plus alongside uh, Jennifer Aniston. And you know, it's all about the Me Too movement. But for people who embrace that self entertainment, if they were to watch Freeway, like you can't say that. Yeah. Or you just said that to a black person. Like, I, I mean, yeah, yeah. she uses... In spite of her boyfriend being black, she's unafraid to let some colorful language fly during a situation where she feels like a cop is asking inappropriate questions. But I just love these unbridled, savage performances where an actor just holds nothing back.
2: Yeah, I mean, Reese is, aside from the score, Reese is the standout in this film. And it is worth watching her in this film. I just feel like the rest of the film is falling apart.
1: Yeah, it's better than, what was it, that stupid one she did, uh, was it Fear. I, fear with, with uh, Alyssa Milano and Mark Wahlberg, Yeah. You know, unwatchable pile yeah. of dog shit. And stuff. I feel like, yeah. So if you want to know what she's all about, yeah, I think Walk the Line, uh, Election, and this are where you really see her cut loose. But I saw Legally Blind in the Theater with my mother, and she was just enthralled. And I was having like a, I was having a Paul Murphy moment. I was like, please, can we go? <laughs> <laughs> they actually play Fear at the Alamo every now and again. So we should go and see it together sometime. Uh, I mean, it, I remember there was like this bit where Mark Wahlberg like carves like her name on a stomach and pours ink on his like so and so like forever like f- like the number four EVA and I was like, this is a movie for mongoloids like for knuckle dragging shitwits like I was like <laughs> I, and I was watching it with my little sister and her friend who were wasted the time and they just wanted they just wanted to bone Mark Wahlberg so they were like all in and yeah. I was like all right well these girls are cute but this movie yeah it's beneath contempt so yeah but Freeway it was a it was a nice little. I, I mean, I've got all these little pockets of film history that I'm always, that are always on my to-do list. So I was just pleased to have an excuse to hunt this one down because I'd seen obviously the other movies many times over, but freeway for me, it it absolutely lived up to its notorious reputation. Are are you
2: going to check out the sequel now?
1: uh, unlikely unless (laughs) i hear somebody vouch for it. yeah it was
2: director video natasha leone danny elfman did not score it uh i think
1: you'd be fine to miss it gotcha matthew bright write it or anything like that or yeah yeah wrote wrote, directed it oh he wrote and directed it gotcha yeah yeah. gotcha lightning couldn't strike twice in the same place i'm afraid not yeah i mean there's so many gross scenes like just like in the jail all the girls kind of like fighting and screwing like britney murphy's in there and yeah yeah. for me i I love these little misfit movies that have been unloved and forgotten so i think. deserves a little more attention.
2: So because my son gets up at 7 in the morning and goes down at 8 o'clock at night, I find it very hard to find time to watch movies. Watch movies outside of what I watch with my wife. So I had to get up at five in the morning to watch this because i wanted to be fresh for the podcast and this is a midnight movie <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is a midnight movie, and five in the morning was just not the right time to watch this i think
1: no it's because uh, it's, it's it's deafening it's like, yeah. it's aggressive and yeah, yeah. yeah at five in the morning you want to watch something sweet and melodic and yeah, so on and yeah. So forth. exactly yeah you want to you, you want to watch edward scissorhands at five in the morning so I, I really have nothing else to say about the score
2: for this other than people need to check it out fair enough all right, what else you got for us? I got, so so. that was my number five. Batman, number two. Freeway, number five. I'm going to do number three now, which I- I'm going to be interested to get your take on this. My number three is Edward Scissorhands.
1: huh? I mean, I've seen it a million times. Okay. I'm very fond of it. I saw it in the theater when it came out. I saw it on HBO countless times. Even saw it blowing up to 70 millimeter huh. at the Egyptian theater in L.A. one oh, time. Oh, wow. And, but I hadn't seen it since like 2000 or 2001. Yeah. And I, got, I, I was just rolling around naked in nostalgia watching this because it is... One of those essential Christmas season dark fairy tales that as a teenager I just was enthralled by. And I think it's one of Johnny Depp's best performances, most restrained. I feel like now he just kind of goes crazy like Al Pacino, but yeah. he actually would hold something in reserve. And I, I feel like this is, the, this and Edward are the essential Tim Burton films that yeah. kind of define what I think of them in terms of like the weird, garish housing that like, kind of like Burbank's suburban nightmare. And then, like, you know, high school bullies. like It's all the, the great archetypes, and how it's like a great metaphor for the creative process where you have these strange little misfits who can create wonderful, beautiful things. But then, at the slightest provocation, everybody turns on them and just kind of eats them alive and wants to burn them at the stake. And it's also a beautiful remake of all these old school, early 30s horror movies like Frankenstein, where you have like a misunderstood monster being chased by pitchforks and people wielding torches. So I, I feel like everything about Edward Scissorhand works. And the score. Is the soul of the movie. Yes.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think I've seen this film since you saw it either. So back early 2000s. And I loved it back then too. I absolutely adored the film. And over time, as I've come to dislike Tim Burton more and come to like dislike Johnny Depp more, I was really worried I was going to, hate the shit
1: out of this film. Well, it's like watching the Lord of the Rings films now after the, the Hobbit films have come out. You're like, ugh. <laughs> I can't even watch those anymore because they make me remember the Hobbit films. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. And uh, I was really surprised at just how much I was into this. Like, really into it. I, and it's it's such a, an oddity, I think. I, I, I think people who didn't grow up t- during this period will watch this film and sort of go, how the fuck did this get made? And the truth of the matter is- Helps us make Batman first. (laughs) The truth of the matter is, is that Tim Burton had made three very successful films and he was given the keys to the kingdom and said, look, just make whatever you want. And unlike Peter Jackson, who came out with a three hour version of King Kong that nobody liked, or most people didn't like- um, he made something weird that everybody liked And made a lot more money um, And I, I I just fell in love with it all over again I, I just watched it a week ago So first time in
1: 15, 20 years And I thought this is fantastic It's one of those things where everything Tim Burton Has ever wanted to say as a filmmaker is in this movie yes. And yes. it's almost like he's been mining it yeah. To the point of exhaustion ever since. Yeah. And, and, you know, I was even shocked by,
2: you know, how sort of dangerous he played it as well. Because, spoilers, at the end,
1: you've got Edward actually, like, killing the bully. Yeah. Just like, you know, Which impaling. Timber was like a high school fantasy because he was the weird kid at a typical Burbank high school. And he probably wanted to kill all the bullies. So he's like, yeah, yeah. fuck yeah, I finally get to kill the goddamn bully who made my life a living hell back in high school. So apparently and Anthony Michael Hall, who is the geek, <laughs> like 16 Candles <laughs> and Breakfast Club. Who's now like this big muscle bound jock. I remember at the time, not even recognizing it as Anthony Michael Hall, even though those other movies had come out a couple years prior. And like halfway through, we're like, oh my God. Like, I think his name's Wyatt and weird signs. Like yeah. that's Wyatt.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and, and I told my wife that during our rewatch last week, And she spent half the film not believing me. And then (laughs) the the second half of the film amazed that it's him at all. You
1: know, it it was a weird choice. Well, He's the the essential eighties geek. And now he is suddenly the bully, the biggest dick on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. I uh I think it is also a great, a great example of how Tim Burton needs great writers. Now there's a writer who wrote a book called Hang on one sec, boom, 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 boom. I've got once again too many oh, Caroline Thompson. She yeah. wrote she wrote a book about an abortion that came back to life called Firstborn. And Tim Burton's like, whoo, all right, well, you're speaking my language. Yeah. And it's a perfect harmony between writer and filmmaker where, and she had some funny line about how uh, she said, every detail was so important to Tim because it was so personal. He's the most articulate person I know, but couldn't put a single sentence together. <laughs> and I have no problem believing that whatsoever. Like Some people have this incredible virt- like visual proficiency, but are completely, utterly illiterate. And I, once again, I feel like Zack Snyder's one of those guys as well, where he's got a style... But can't read a book. Yes. And so anytime you get something like Batman v Superman, where you have like some really crummy writers, the movie just completely disintegrates. He really needs great material and then he's off to the races. Yes,
2: yeah. Tim Burton needs good writers. And you know, I I've read the Sam Hamm script to Batman, the 89 Batman, and that was really good. I kinda wish he had a stuck to that script a little bit more, actually. But uh, this is also an example of a good relationship between a composer and a writer because Danny Elfman started dating Caroline Thompson after this that film.
1: Then he ended up marrying Bridget Fonda. He Bridget a, Fonda, yeah. who he
2: scored in A Simple Plan.
1: Yeah, I mean, talk about fucking Babeslayer. I mean, Bridget Fonda, <laughs> late 80s, I mean, late 90s, early 2000s, I mean, she was, uh, she's a 10. But when it comes to score, maybe my favorite moment of all of Danny Elfman's music is during the first ice sculpture scene when Winona Ryder's just kind of like spinning around in the yeah. snow. The music it just takes over. There's no dialogue, and it's yeah. just like a couple minutes there, and then of course, Anthony Michael Hall's like, "Hey!" And yeah, yeah, he accidentally cuts her hand, but it's a beautiful little scene. And also, it kind of comes back at the very end when she's talking about how it used to never snow, and now when it snows, sometimes you'll still catch me dancing in it. But I feel like that's Danny Elfman at, at his sweetest and most like kind of melancholy and poetic.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I think it's as much as it's the most Tim Burton. Tim Burton has been. It's also the most Danny Elfman. Like this is iconic. This is the choir, the Celeste, you know, the harp. This is all those ingredients of him. And it's such a beautiful, memorable score. Yeah. It's whimsical. And you sort of, you even the most cynical person has to sort of give themselves over to it, you know?
1: Yeah, this is like the, I think it, what makes it easier to give yourself over to it is that it's not pure, sugary, sweet. You see this suburban community of petty, vindictive, Gossiping, like shrews, yes. turning on them, yeah. And so that 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 mean spiritedness at the core of the film, or in the latter part of the film, makes it a little easier to accept, like the other kind of more, yeah, like overly sweet elements. You have to have that the the evil, otherwise it just gives you diabetes. It's
2: it's interesting. I saw this film for the first time in the cinema when I was twelve, and I was probably a little too young for it because I remember the opening theme. Uh, with Danny Elfman was just beautiful and it has all these sort of grotesque kind of monster sculptures at the start and I was like this looks fantastic and then it turns into like this 1950s suburban drama and I just got bored I didn't understand it I didn't know what was going on the whimsy wasn't really appealing to me it wasn't until I went back to this film probably when I was like 18 that I really got into it and really liked it so I felt as though as much as I liked Batman, coming from Batman to this, I didn't get it as as a twelve-year-old.
1: Yeah, Batman's definitely much more a twelve-year-old cup of tea, w- without a doubt. But Tim Burton has said this is his favorite film for whatever reason. He says, "I don't think it's my greatest film, but it's my favorite film." It's like, what's the difference? Like, yeah. I, mean, I, I hate this like distinction between like things that you like versus things you respect. Like, <laughs> they they can be one and the same. And but I would maybe Ed, I don't know. I'm always torn between Edward. I feel like Edward is the essential but goddamn Edward Scissorhands certainly hit the bigger hit I and mean, yes. reached a much wider audience. Which
2: is just crazy. All those elements in the film, there's no reason that should work on a massive scale with audiences. There's just no reason, but there was something about 1990 that it just sort of took off for people.
1: Yeah, the early 90s had a lot of that I mean, when you see it like a few years later with Nightmare Before Christmas, which yeah. Tim Burton produced, but... Caroline Thompson also wrote. Oh, interesting. But Danny Elfman, I didn't realize, so now it's the fucking voice of Jack Skellington. That's and right. I was like... Whoa! <laughs> I was such a nerd, and I was like, I was in like I was in the choir, and I was doing school plays and that sort of thing. I would drive around singing unashamedly alongside Jack Skellington, like with a lot of fervor. Yeah. <laughs> and I cannot hit those same notes, but I thought I could at the time. But the, that that particular soundtrack took over my life. as like a junior in high school. But man, Danny Elfman, he wrote the whole goddamn totally. movie. Yeah. I, I feel like you could. I'm, I'm I'm actually kind of shocked and amazed that Nightmare Before Christmas did not make your top five.
0: What I do, I am the best, for my talents are renowned far and wide. When it comes to surprises in the moonlit night, I excel without ever even trying. With the slightest little effort of my ghost-like charms, I have seen grown men give out a shriek. With the wave of my hand in a well-placed mode, I have swept the very bravest off their feet. Yet year after year, it's the same routine, and I grow so weary of the sound of screams. And I, Jack, the Pumpkin King, have grown so tired of the same old thing oh somewhere deep inside of these bones an emptiness began to grow there's something out there far from my home a longing that
2: i've never It will not make my top five. It's funny, in preparation for this, I went to Spotify to see the top five Danny Elfman tracks and they're all Nightmare Before Christmas. But I make the distinction because this is the top five best scores. And while Nightmare Before Christmas is a great score, it's not my top five. The songs are amazing, but this is score. Beautiful. All
1: right. I I, I appreciate the distinction.
2: <laughs> um, did you have anything else to say about Edward C. Uh, um
1: Nothing related to the score. It's all, Once again, while watching these movies, I got so caught up in them, I would start getting distracted by other ingredients. I, was like, I, I kept having to remind myself, you're, you're paying attention to the score, yes. but I would just... I would just surrender myself up to the story and kind of get swept away. So I started taking notes fast and furious, and I'm like, this has nothing to do with the score. Stop, blah, blah, blah. Well, I'm happy
2: to talk about anything non-score.
1: Yes, but I think that's um all... I think that's all I've got on the score. So I'll, I will say, because I've never done a Tim Burton episode, at some point I would have to do like the definitive love-slash-hate Tim yes. Burton episode, but I feel like we're doing a pretty good job of it right now, <laughs> hitting on all the appropriate uh, moments in his career. Well, let,
2: let me move on to number four on my list then, which is a film I'm excited to talk to you about, which is To Die For. Suzanne would do anything to be famous.
0: Gonna be the next Barbara Walters. I believe that Mr. Gorbachev,
1: you know, the man who ran Russia for so long, I believe that he would still be in power today if he had that big purple thing
0: taken off his forehead. To be on television,
1: you're not anybody in America unless you're on TV,
0: was a chance she would die for. You're on. Good evening from the WWEN Weather Center. Weather well, Center?
1: Have any of you actually ever been on television before? Yeah.
0: To be a star... You've got to be able to do things that ordinary people wouldn't do. ...was the opportunity she would kill for.
1: <sighs> okay.
0: <laughs> and that's exactly what she did.
1: I don't think I need to tell you that today was a hard one. <sighs>
0: With just a slight chill in the air.
1: Three. Nothing
0: is gonna stop her. to the real America. Suzanne, did you get those kids to kill your husband? Where criminals get to be celebrities. It was on First Edition and American Justice. And celebrities get away with murder. It's nice to live in a country where life, liberty, and all the rest of it still stand
1: for something.
0: Nicole Kidman is to die for.
1: Which I I'm a big fan. This
2: I mean the score here is is fucking amazing. And it's it's kind of the anti it's the anti-Edward Scissorhand score in a way because it has the same Harps and choir, but it's also uh, sort of got these crashes to this death metal sound.
1: I mean, you see Matt Dillon burning Nicole Kidman against a tree, and it's like, digga 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 digga. It's like "Fuck yeah, that's that's fucking music."
2: And that's that's Denny Elfman playing the guitar there nice. as well. That's him channeling his Oingo Boingo days. Very cool. So, the, I mean, that's a beautiful uh, opening sequence to "To Die For," where we're basically scanning across tabloid newspapers, and I mean, he Gus fans Stant who directed the film must have really visualized this or or whoever he hired to visualize it did an amazing job where he's just getting closer and closer to the print across all of these headlines. And when I watched it with my wife a couple of years ago, she pointed out like it gets so close to the print that the print breaks up into dots and you see Nicole Kidman's dress later on in the film and it's made up of those same dots. There's this interesting sort of consistency
1: there. But does that kind of tabloid culture even exist anymore? Because I out yeah. vividly in the '90s, you go to the grocery store, and there'd just be a rack, yes. of tabloids, fuckloads of them, and people just ate it up. You know, like woman has a bat baby and stuff like that. Yeah, and they have, yeah. like This like picture of a child, like ah, but it, Or is it just basically gone from the rack to Twitter? Is it just like part of like imbued in social media now, yeah. where everything is tabloid culture?
2: I guess that's it. Is that it? it we it, it still exists. We're we're just not at the place where it's available anymore. Fair you know, enough. It's, it's all online, but. You know, this was based on a true story, based on a book. It's it's a fucking tight film as well. It's it's a, it's a lean 90 minutes. The script is by Buck Henry, who did The Graduate.
1: Yeah, and he's, done it. He's, he's great. I, lo- I love Buck Henry. Yeah, yeah,
2: hadn't written anything for 10 years and came out with this script, which is an amazingly tight script. Uh, you know, I, I feel like we don't make black
1: comedies like this anymore. Just really black comedies. The 90s. I didn't appreciate it at the time, but the '90s might have more black comedies than any other decade. Yeah, yeah. I feel like you know Gen Xers are heavy on irony. Yeah, I feel like work. I think like of all the generations from baby boomers up through Generation Z, Gen Xers are the coolest generation because we have an appreciation for darkness. Yeah,
2: it sort of starts with like heathers around that area, and I feel like this is a similar thing. Yeah, this like is heathers about, through like happiness, and also I think this is
1: first film with Casey Affleck as well. Yep. Um, and Joaquin Phoenix is, is awesome in it fantastic yeah I mean he's he's as skinny in this as he is in the Joker but he didn't have to lose the weight because he's, he's a fresh faced youth at this point but Casey Affleck Apparently Ben Affleck and Matt Damon were both considered for the role, but they'd lost their Boston accents at this point. Casey still had it, so they boom, and, 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 he, and he went. So
2: the score is kind of all over the place. Sometimes it sounds like Edward Scissorhands. Sometimes it sounds like a death metal album. It's also got some interesting like choir moments in it, which are just choir, um, that sort of plays up the sort of bubblegum aspect of, of her reality. But it's only like a 20-minute score, so I don't think it ever got like a proper, proper
1: release, but... Damn, that's but has great school. little bits. There's this one scene where Nicole Kidman is basically teasing to no end this poor girl that she's making the documentary about. But she's trying on a series of different outfits of like just a lot of underwear. Yeah, yeah. And you don't see any nudity. You just see like underwear and panties and bras and everything being kind of discarded. And this teenager just kind of like salivating, looking at Nicole Kidman. But you get one of those classic kind of Danny Elfman jingles throughout throughout that whole scene. Yeah. yeah, so. yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I I absolutely adored adored the score. And what do you think of
1: the song choices? Because you have "Sweet Home Alabama," a good one. one. Yep. where she's dancing in the rain, showing her panties in front of the headlights. Yep. Then of course you have "Season at the Witch" at the end by Donovan during the uh, the big ice skating sequence. And yeah,
2: I, th- I think that's something Gus Van Sant's good at, right? Is is putting songs in his films, and and you know the Elliot Smith songs in Goodwill Hunting as well were really good, and and Danny Elfman scored that as well. And worked really hard to sort of seamlessly make the score and the Elliot Smith songs sort of work together. That's that's actually a good soundtrack, The Goodwill Hunting soundtrack. Yeah, I haven't seen Goodwill Hunting
1: since I saw it in the theater when it came out. I remember at the time, because I was a cynical youth, oh, uh, because it got so warmly embraced. I had to reject it. It's like kind uh, of just uh, when you're 21, 22, and everybody from like you know across the spectrum suddenly like falls in love with the movie. My first instinct was always, well, then it must suck balls. So, yeah. you know, like Titanic, whatever. <laughs> and so, Good Will Hunting kind of got looked. But I should, I should probably you should re- revisit. It. You should. We I went back to it a while ago, and it holds up. Yeah. Uh. But a, a big stand-up performance I just want to mention from To Die For, which I didn't appreciate at the time. Ileana Douglas yeah. who when I was a teenager, when I mean, she would show up in things like Cape Fear mm-hmm. or uh Goodfellas, I'd be like, Oh, she's kind of a kind of a kind of odd looking. I don't know what's different between different between being a teenager versus forty three. I completely fell in love with her in yeah. this. Like the way she's ice skating, the way she's talking, the way she expresses herself. Just this fucking adorable performance. And also Nicole Kidman is this cold, maniacal, dictatorial, madly ambitious reality tv star kind of crazy person mm. and iliana douglas is just soft and warm and cool and funny and so so grounded and so down to earth but yeah i just I, she really caught me off guard with her performance yeah
2: and she, i mean she's an actress who has forged if nothing a very interesting career right just every choice she makes was an interesting choice and she actually did a retrospective at film forum a couple of years ago which i i sadly missed but If she was in a film, you knew it was an interesting film. I think.
1: So how did Nicole Kidman not even get nominated for an Academy Award for this? Yeah, it's
2: crazy, right? And
1: and I think that a lot of actresses have referenced her
2: performance as well. I know that uh, Reese Witherspoon referenced it for Election as well.
1: Um, But great, great performance. And apparently, uh, I think sometimes the Academy gets a little upset and undone by dark. Perverse, subversive yeah. comedies.
2: It's not worthy. It's not. It's not important, right? But I just think it's a perfect film. Yeah, I
1: feel like these kind of comedies are the best comedies. The ones that like stick a knife in the side of the audience, kind of twist it around a little bit. Like those are the kind of comedies I want. Yeah, and we so sadly just don't really get at all anymore. And,
2: and in an interesting way, you know, this was a film that was made in the '90s, but sort of preempted a lot of the culture that we're in now oh, as yes. well. I mean, People's obsession with you know being in
1: front of a camera. I mean it predicts Instagram, Snapchat, yep. Twitter, everything. She just it's just a different medium, but it's the exact same mentality. Yeah, yeah. Where it's like if you're not on TV, then you don't even exist essentially. And it's like, well, if you're not on social media, like what is your social currency in 2019? Exactly. I hope you're on camera at some point. Yeah, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, I have been known to dabble with the, uh, the world of YouTube uh, from, from time to time. Hey, did
2: you pick the director cameo at the very end, by the way? Fuck,
1: yeah, David Cronenberg. Yeah. yeah, and second best david Cronenberg performance behind nightbreed but which was also scored by denny elfman oh no way yeah. but the, when, when kernenberg shows up he squeezes her hand just a little bit too hard like Ooh, this guy something's off about it yeah. like, oh yeah let's go around here let's and he kind of guides her down behind a bridge and it happens off screen but then of course you cut to uh, the jump cut to her just frozen beneath the uh, the surface of the lake but if yeah, if you're gonna have a serial or not a, serial, but a, a killer for a killer for hire in your movie why not hire David Cronenberg? They're shooting in Toronto. He fucking lives there. And yeah, yeah, yeah. He just crushes it. He hit a home run with it. Loved it. Loved it. Yeah. I love Cronenberg. And also he's for such a strange guy. Like uh, uh, Martin Scorsese once said, you remind me of like a Beverly Hills plastic surgeon. He's a very like, good looking <gasps> guy and very stylish. That's quite good actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: It's, it's, it's actually that dead ring is kind of vibe, right? I, absolutely. <laughs> doubt, he would have been a great
1: gynecologist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he would have been all up in there. All right, so what? We, I think we we do we have one left, or yeah, where, yeah. Where, we where got where one stand? left. We All got right.
2: one left, and and you know maybe it's a bit obvious. I listened to this on the subway here just to reinforce to myself that this should be number one, and that is Beetlejuice.
1: Did you watch this? I did. I watched it again, but I caught it in the theater at random. Huh. As a kid, when it came out, my friends and I were like, we just like to go to the movies. Yeah. We would see Drop Dead Fred or the dumbest shit on on earth. We just happened to go see Beetlejuice and we're just enthralled. And then I saw it a gazillion times on TV. Yeah. yeah. But I hadn't seen it in decades prior to watching this. Man, like I did not appreciate Michael Keaton's performance at all as a kid. But now I'm like, oh, this is like 90% ad-libbed, foul-mouthed, fucked up saying disgusting shit. That was totally over my head as a teenager. But once again, this is like a weird, quirky, almost like family comedy in a lot of ways, but it's got whorehouses and f bombs, and like, <laughs> this is PG 13, but it is, it is a PG 13 movie. Yeah, yeah, it's so and there's like, so nice th- fucking model. <laughs> you don't get lines like that in most PG 13 movies.
2: There's so little of him in the film too, right? Like you feel as though he must be most of the film, but I feel like so, somebody's got to add up his screen time in the
1: film. There feels like there's so little of it. No, there. Uh, apparently it's 20 percent. Huh. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I had a similar experience. Um, I did not see this at the movies, but I went back to uh, a friend's place. Oh God, I must have been 11 at the time, rented the VHS not knowing what it was, put it in, um, and, you know, you, you get to know this couple who within 15 minutes die. <laughs> and I remember at the time, you know, a, an 11-year-old not really seeing something like that in films. I was like... What the fuck happens uh, yeah. now? Where's my safety net? Yeah, yeah it's gone. Right. Where's my safety net? <laughs> yeah, and and it just I just absolutely fell in love with it. And I think a big part of that is is the Danny Elfman score. at It the start.
1: is the most important character in the movie, and it is as much as like Michael Keaton. Is in very little of it. It'd be hard to find p- scenes that don't have Danny Elfman score. I'd say probably twenty percent of the movie at best has no music throughout. It's just it guides you by the hand yeah. every step of the way.
2: Yeah. So the the opening scene is what appears to be an aerial flight over the town, which turns out to be uh, a flight over the miniature. Um, I still can't pick that cut.
1: And it catches me every time. But as I was watching it this time, I was like, oh, I forgot. As a kid, I used to try to figure out where the cut is. Yeah. and I can never figure it out. But yeah, at 43, it still, it still tricked me. Yeah,
2: I I, I kind of know the area that it's in, but I still can't quite pick where that cut is where we go from an actual aerial to the miniature. But you have this amazing score that I just hadn't heard in a film before with this sort of grand piano playing something that's like akin to the Muppet Show theme or something like weird spectral voices. And it actually has that Harry Belafonte, the banana boat song incorporated into it. Mm-hmm. So it's, which, which is a big plot point later, but they actually put it right
1: there at the start as well. I, I just get so excited every time I hear this piece of music. What's interesting now is that like when people make fun of Danny Elfman scores, whether it's on family guy or whatever, all the ingredients that are kind of ridiculed and satired now are all present in Beetlejuice but they work really well. And be, oh, yeah. it doesn't feel like diminishing returns. It doesn't feel yes. like a repeat of the past. This is like they're putting the stamp on it and kind of, this is they're establishing the template for what's to come later. And you would think that perhaps it might taint your experience now because of the subpar Tim Burton's that have come yep. later on. The movie still feels fresh as the day as it was released. Yeah,
2: And I, you know, I take that criticism that he does repeat himself. And I think that is just like the, the economics of, of, being a Hollywood composer is that, whereas a director will be on a film for four or five years, right? And then they'll start another one. A composer, as I said earlier, is on a film for six weeks. So what do you do for the rest of the year? You try and take on as many other scores as possible. And at some point, you're just going to have to, like if, if you're the comic book guy and everybody's
1: asking you to do comic books, you're going to do a lot of the same yeah, thing. Yeah, it's like Hans Zimmer. He's very in demand right now, very yeah. popular. But Hans Zimmer's been known to... Uh... Repeat certain themes from yeah, time yeah, to time. Yeah. So he he uh, Danny Elfman isn't a, isn't alone in yeah. this sin, and John Williams I'm shit. He's been repeat, repeating himself for decades. Yeah, but <laughs> I mean,
2: it's I honestly think it's it's everybody except for the director, because the director is there or usually there from development to production to post production. These people have enough time to sort of do another project and make that project different. But editors, even writers. All of us, we're all looking for the next gig, and usually the next gig is based on the last gig that you did that was successful. So they sort of say, can you just sort of do yeah, the same absolutely. thing you did in the you get, last year? You get typecast. Year? Exactly.
1: Well, I think what sets Beetlejuice's score apart from some of the later ones, like Tim Burton now, his, he's gotten so lost inside the silliness vibe, yeah. he forgets that in movies like Beetlejuice, there would be heartfelt tender moments. Like even like something as ridiculous as the two main characters, when their faces are horribly distended and distorted, They're having like a heart-to-heart moment like, oh, I just want to be with Lydia before they go through the door. It's ridiculous, but it's very sincere and very Mm. moving all at once. And I think perhaps those moving emotions that make Beetlejuice so powerful decades later they're they're largely absent where Tim Burton now is like i'm just going to do wall-to-wall silliness for two straight hours like a circus on acid but you have to have that variety in the score yeah. as well and there are moments like when they're sitting there like hanging suspended in the air during the exorcism you're like oh my god they're about to have like the death for the dead it's a scary disturbing scene without yes. a doubt and it's it's very haunting and i feel like Tim Burton almost seems reluctant or afraid of actual real sincere fear and emotion in his movies these days, where he's he's kind of hiding behind just the silliness as opposed to actually getting emotionally invested in the story.
2: Yeah, I've always tried to verbalize uh, what I think is uh, Tim Burton's problem and a lot of other people's problem, and I, I never quite get this wording right, but I think that like making good art is continually trying to define who you are as an artist, and the moment that you think you know who you are that's that's when you're in trouble, and that's that's where we came to with Tim Burton. Is like, now Tim Burton's going to do Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Now he's going to do Alice in Wonderland, but he's going to do it like Tim Burton. You know, there's going to be a lot of white and black lines. There's going to be weird haircuts. You know, as soon as your style is obvious, I think you're in trouble. Same thing happened to Hitchcock in many ways. Um, so, I think the best thing is to always
1: be sort of throwing away
2: people's preconceptions.
1: Well, it reminds you me of like a rock star or an actor gets to a point where their look gets locked in amber and never yeah. changes. Like you look at like Alice Cooper, like Alice Cooper, he, he eventually becomes Alice Cooper. Yes. And then he's like, and now I'm never going to change yeah, my yeah. outfit or my haircut or my makeup yeah. ever again. Or when you see, the weirdest one is when you see someone who's a famous child actor, like Mickey Rooney, where he tried to kind of look like that child actor the rest of his life. Like, like you're 70. <laughs> like, you're allowed to look like you're 70. Like, yeah. Stop. You're not cute like- anymore. <laughs> yeah. And it gets weird yeah. and shit. And that happened to Tim Burton. He reached a certain point where he locked in his look and his aesthetic, and then he just got complete, total creative paralysis. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, well, Beetlejuice, I think... It blows my mind, like, this wasn't a super expensive movie, but that it was one of the top ten performing movies of that year. Like, you think of the 80s as being, like, nothing but like Joel Silver action movies and like or, or Tony Scott movies, but you do have these unconventional oddball films coming out of it as well, and I feel like during a period where everything starts feeling, like, everything feels like Miami Vice, the... What I guess what the counter programming to that aesthetic becomes things like Tim Burton, and I think sometimes people overlook the fact that the '80s has so many strange little gems like Beetlejuice kind of lurking. I mean, just the fact you have like stop motion, claymation, sandworms on Saturn mm. like what the like, what the fuck? Like what 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 am I watching? But it but it totally works and it's totally organic to the film. Tim Burton now when he does claymation or stop motion, it just feels so lifeless and soulless. Yeah. Like Corpse Bride when that came out, I was like, what what's wrong? Like, it's like, everything's wrong about this movie. It's like all the heart and all the soul from Nightmare Before Christmas is all missing. Yeah. And that was, that was one of the big, first big warning bells when I saw Corpse Bride and felt absolutely nothing for it. It just felt so phoned in and so familiar.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's it again, right? It's like, and now Tim Burton's going to be making Nightmare Before Christmas again, you know, it's with all the same cast and we're going to have Danny Elfman doing the songs. It's probably one of the few Danny Elfman soundtracks that I actually got for free but couldn't listen to the whole thing. And I don't think I've listened to it
1: since. I don't know a single song from The Corpse Bride. No, I saw it in the theater, and then I, I, I put it out of my mind, and I've left it out of my mind yeah. ever since. Whereas Night Before Christmas, I sat down with my nieces and nephews a couple of years ago and threw that in, and they got a little scared at first. Like, is this a scary movie? I was like, I promise you it's not a scary movie. They're like, this feels like a scary movie because the opening credits, it's yeah. like, you know, I'm the thing hiding under your bed and so on and so forth. But then they got into the spirit of things. So I was like, it's a Halloween movie and a Christmas movie. All rolled into one and they were like whoa yeah because those don't, those hybrids don't really exist so my my son for
2: a for a two and a half year old is oddly film literate now i've nice. I've, <laughs> I've, ta- I've taken him to the movies like god it must be six or seven times now and he sits through most of it but one of his earliest loves was wallace and gromit just abso- oh, fuck yeah. absolutely absolutely wrong trousers one of the best animated shorts yeah. ever made and i really wanted to step up the game there and, and get him into nightmare before Christmas. But I just don't think I can get him through those first 10 minutes.
1: Two and a half. I mean, I, for me, it's like, you know, when a child is ready and I feel like every child is ready at a different times. Some kids are ready for something rough when they're five and yeah. some aren't ready ever. Like you have like adults in the that Ooh, I can't watch scary movies. It's like how old are you? Like when are you going to be ready to yeah, finally yeah. watch scary movies? So for everybody's different. And I feel like as your parent, you kind of got to know your kid really well. But my dad, for whatever reason, Kind of always knew when I was ready for the next crazy thing that he was going to expose me yeah. to, and he basically never took a misstep. Like, I he took me to see Conan when I was five, but like he waited until I was eighteen for the Wild Bunch. Like, by the time I saw the Wild Bunch, I was completely ready for it. I wouldn't have been able to sit through the Wild Bunch if I'd been ten or eleven. I'm Like, this is for old people. Yeah. But when I finally saw it, I was like, this is fucking epic and killer and yeah. sad and grand and it's everything I want a western to be. So yeah, yeah he was pretty good. But I feel like you just got to really know your kid. And, and as a parent,
2: I am like experiencing that firsthand right now is trying to figure out what is right
1: for him and what is not. Just trying to feel it in my gut a bit, too. Well, also, right now, he has no input into what he's going to watch. By the time he's like six or seven, he's like, Daddy, I want to go see Toy Story 6. And you're like, No! yeah, You're going to have to see all these movies that you hate. All the time. <laughs> well, you you
2: say you say he has no input in it, but he actually has a lot of input, and and that's why I've seen B movie probably a hundred times in gotcha. the past two weeks. There, he absolutely loves B movie. But I took him to see Arctic Dogs uh, on Saturday at uh, Alpine Cinema in Brooklyn, and I I thought all the ingredients were there. It's like. 3d animation it'll be fun there won't be any 30 minute sequences where an old person dies of cancer which is always the death of a film with a two-year-old yeah if um, a dog
1: gets shot or a parent dies exactly like, oh. yeah
2: it's, it's like ever since up came out every kid's film tries to put in this thing that kids just I fall asleep Paul to up. i walked out of up oh, did you really yeah at what point did you walk out of up
1: like 20 25 minutes or so and so so had, I the, had now the woman died like you are a Evil. I'm like, yeah. no, that movie's shrill. Yeah. And I just fucking hate that. The, uh, oh, sorry, did, I, did you say up? I'm getting, I'm getting up and inside out mixed up.
2: Oh, that's garbage. Yeah. That film is absolute garbage. Up,
1: <laughs> I gave myself over to it. Yeah, I, I just had a scene on moment where I got my Pixar movies confused. Yeah. It's, like it's inside out that yeah, has my no, that, hatred and that disdain. That is
2: such a bad film. And I did not walk out of it. And that's 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 on me. I should I should have walked out. I remember walking out on it and hearing like 50-year-old people talk about how amazing it was. And I'm like, have you never seen another film before? Like, uh, I, I get angry talking about Inside Out.
1: Yeah, well, you're in the right place because yeah. I get some pushback from people whose tastes I, I respect. And they're just like, they just... For what they find to be so profound about the emotions of a child and how they have to learn to experience sadness as part of the growing process, I find to be so... Clumsy, yes. and obvious, and this yeah. is like, yeah, no shit. Like, but there are a million other movies that do it a thousand times better. Yeah,
2: <laughs> but, and, and if I can get distracted off our main topic for a second, just so I can say it, I also hear people say, "Oh, it's just so amazing how they took emotions and turned them into secondary characters." I was like. That's what every film does. They just do it less explicitly, you know? (laughs) They're
1: they're just not spelling it out for dumbasses. (laughs) So this
2: character we're going to call anger. (laughs) And this character we're going to call lust. Well, that's every film. We're just less obvious about it.
1: It's simplistic. And I feel like if you are three... Simplistic can be wonderful, yeah. But I'm not three. I I I need complexity. Yeah. I need I need nuance, and, and or I, or I just need fucking freeway. I need Reese Witherspoon <laughs> talking all sorts of mad shit in a raging <laughs> Southern accent. <laughs> That's what I need. So you're, you you re rewatched Beetlejuice? Oh and, hell yeah! And good screening. Um, oh, without a doubt. It's yeah. Slam dunk.
2: Am so. I right that they've turned it into a musical? It's playing on Broadway right now.
1: Yeah. Is it good? You say that as if I would go see... uh, (laughs) Musicals based on movies is one of the dumbest and most popular phenomena that we can experience here in New York. Yeah, it's like, oh, like Full Monty was a hit film out of Britain? Let's do a stupid musical out of it. And once upon a time, Hollywood would look to Broadway for plays and for musicals and they would adapt them in the films. Now they take... Dumb. I mean, I don't mean if they've done this, but they gonna be like Ron Howard's the Grinch, which I think is right there alongside inside out. It's just some yes! an unwatchable pile of yes! shit. And like, well, let's turn it into a musical or Shrek. The, Shrek. Know. They did do, do it as a musical. but yeah. Broadway is even dumber than Hollywood now. And who would have thought that would be possible? Yeah. But, but it's yeah. the ultimate tourist trap.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I remember Kevin Mars line uh, in his video about Toby Hooper, where he said, uh, uh, you know, horror villains if they stick around long enough become bobblehead figurines you know and it sort of sucks their power and i feel like it's the same with with movies like beetlejuice and i think they did the same thing with edward scissorhands and that's when you turn that sort of magic of those films and just make it into this horrible broadway mess not that i've seen it maybe it's brilliant it could be, but I
1: think the safe money <laughs> is that it is not. Well, where can people find you if they want to find your podcast? When can people expect to see your film? Yes. Just give, give us all the vital stats and details about what's going on okay, in, your, in so, your saga.
2: So the podcast is ScreenPsychics.com, uh, where we watch, we, we talk about films before watching them. Then we review them and find out how right we were afterwards. We've been a little lax in putting up episodes lately, but... I'm going to change that. Oh, so you've been putting a film to bed. So. Yes, and in terms of the film, I wish I could tell you what the name of it is, but I actually delivered it, and the film's name that still was part of the debate during the yeah, screenings. Yeah, yeah.
1: What what should the name be? Yeah, At, what was the name of it when I saw it? So
2: the name of it when you saw it was Blind Ambition. Yeah, which which, which reminded me of Blonde Ambition. Right, but, which we did have some pushback against in that screening. So TBC is what I'm going to go with. Okay. I delivered it without a name.
1: That's. I mean, I almost feel like. Trying to find a name that satisfies all the time and effort that's gone into something is virtually impossible It's almost better to come up with a name and then make a movie that fits the name as opposed to make it like be like trying to write like writing an eight hundred page novel and then thinking of the title. No title is going to fit or yes. feel like it's organic to the process you've just gone through. Well,
2: well, we did feel strongly about the name early on, but oddly enough a comment that we had early that we also had in the screening was, I thought this was a film about blind people tasting wine. Uh, and That's we've, fair. <laughs> we, we've, we've heard that enough now that we're sort of like, oh, we should sort of do something about this title.
1: Yeah, that, well, that, 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 that is a tricky thing. And sometimes you just need an outside participant. Like I, one of my first internships was for this guy, Sid Gannis. He had nothing to do with Fatal Attraction apart from the name Fatal Attraction. Huh. And it perfectly fits the movie. It's like, Whoa! Fuck yeah, Fatal Attraction. That works really well. But he, that's why he was Sid Gannon. He was a, su- a successful producer. He knew how to market films. So sometimes you just need somebody to step in and come up. Like Masters of the Universe was like plucked out of thin air by huh. some, some exec in the room that had all these other names. And someone was like, why don't you just call it Masters of the Universe? And they are like, all right, I guess if the shoe fits, let's yeah. call it Masters of the Universe. And, that, and that's what it became. So. Maybe you need to hire some slimy exec who's totally un- emotionally uninvested in the film. Just throw it a couple of zingers for you.
2: Well, if any slimy execs are listening and they have suggestions Call for John name, Peters. Yeah,
1: call John <laughs> Peters. We'll take it. We need a name. Be good. Beautiful. Well, hope you all enjoyed this episode. Definitely hunt down Danny Elfman's scores and revisit these movies. You'll be surprised by how well they hold up. Or if you're seeing them for the first time, they just... They all fucking kick ass. They're, they're, that's five outstanding flicks. But if you need some more content in the short term, definitely hunt down Screen Psychics or go to my YouTube channel, Geek with James Hancock. I'm right at the knocking at the door at 18,000 subscribers. So I want to get over that little hump. And if you want to buy some merch... You can check out the show notes below for coffee mugs. We got, we got Paul drinking out of a wrong little coffee mug. It tastes as, better. As, as we speak, it tastes, it, it tastes like trucker speed and cocaine <laughs> kind of all rolled into one. But can't thank you enough for listening. Greatly appreciated. it. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve?
0: You just put your lips together and blow.